This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mexican, but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. And that's what happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Brazil is a world leader in crime, particularly violent crime. What are the principal causes and are there any solutions? Welcome to another episode of 35 West. I'm your host, Richard Miles. This morning, I have as my guest David Van Patten, Chief Operating Officer of Prison Fellowship International, which operates in 117 countries around the world. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks. David, let's start talking about, I guess, uh, crime in Brazil. Brazil is, depending on how you measure it, one of the most violent countries in the world. Uh, last year, recorded 64,000 murders, in, uh, sorry, in 2017, uh, which in terms of raw numbers was the world's highest. Now, if you break that down on a per capita basis, it's still in the top 20. And it's not even in the top, I think, eight in terms of Central America and Latin America because we're talking about very violent societies in Central America and so on. But still, 64,000 murders is a lot. It's, it's definitely a problem. What, in your opinion, based on your experience with Brazil, what are sort of the main drivers of that uh, violence? And I guess I should clarify, violence isn't just murders, obviously. Violence can include all sorts of things like violent crime, kidnappings, assault, burglaries, robberies, that sort of stuff. What is driving that and, and what have you seen in the years that you've been working on Brazil? Yeah, like a lot of things, it's probably a perfect storm of several things. One is just the inequities between the rich and the poor. And one of the things that strike, struck me the first time I went to Brazil and continues to is how extreme poverty can coexist right next to opulence. I mean, it's it's amazing how, especially when you get around some of the larger cities where you can see that coexisting. And I think one of the problems is that you've got, especially in Brazil, we've got a, a lot of young kids growing up and they're exposed to that. They don't see an avenue for them in terms of how they can achieve any of what they see all around them. So I think that's one of the factors. Another piece of the puzzle is that it's very interesting to me the first time I went and you start talking to people, most people don't trust the police. Um, so there is this uh, belief that the police exist to serve individuals with power, almost like a private security force, and that you don't go to the police if you have a problem. You protect yourself, you put your own walls around your own condo or whatever. So there's a high level of distrust toward the police. And I think into that gap, organized criminal gangs have moved. The rate of uh, violent crime among minors who have become part of these organized gangs has increased, I think, 140% in the last 10 years. So organized criminal gangs provide a family or an avenue. And a lot of kids, a lot of young people see uh, being part of a gang as heroic and an efficient way to get what they want. And then I think we, the capstone to all this is that the government's, my, my perspective anyway, is that the government has been much more reactive and not proactive. So what does that mean? Prisons have become the part of the reactive policy, build more prisons, get tougher on crime. And 
what that's done is fueled the rate the, that the prison population's grown and the prisons themselves are breeding grounds. I mean, the organized, the, the gangs, the criminal gangs in Brazil or uh, manage or uh, run a lot of what goes on in those prisons. So we're creating a system that feeds itself in terms of the criminal gangs and the government's posture for the most part has been to react to that by getting tough, not necessarily attacking the problem at the root. So something you said very interesting, David, I think that it you know, dovetails with what we know about the rest of the region uh, in, in Latin America. Certainly, I know this is true of Mexico and Argentina, and that is if you ask people sort of to rank order professions in terms of trustworthiness, right? If you did that survey in North America and Europe, you know, generally police, firefighters, law enforcement officials of any level are going to end up somewhere near the top of that ranking. And in Latin America, it's almost exactly the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> almost always it's the police and particularly the local police end up at the very bottom mm -hmm. in terms of trust. So interesting what you said. Before we talk into, into uh, about prison specifically, which is, is your really uh, your area of expertise, uh, let's back up a little bit and talk about the response of Brazilian authorities to this crime wave. Talk a little bit about the criminal justice system in Brazil. If you're, if, if you're accused of a crime, of a violent crime in Brazil, what what is sort of the process look like? I mean, do they have access to uh, attorneys or, or the through the judges? Can they be trusted? Is it a jury system? How does that work for sort of an average case? I wouldn't characterize myself as an expert on uh, the whole criminal justice system there, but it's interesting because some of the effects of it, the investigative competency of the police in terms of their ability to investigate and, and arrest, make arrests that lead to convictions is not very high. I mean, so there isn't a high level of investment in the police in terms of their investigative capabilities. A second element, uh, I think, that it impacts the criminal justice system quite a bit is even though there are laws on the books that require arraignment within a certain period of time before a judge, the judges are, the courts are so backed up that you have prisons filling up with pretrial detainees. They haven't even been arraigned. They're by law required to get an arraignment, but they haven't. And they're in prisons with hardened criminals for crimes they haven't been tried for yet. So I think part of the problem is you've got an investigative component of the, the police department that is unable to actually solve crimes. So the risk reward for kids or people joining gangs is, gosh, it's a pretty efficient way to get what I want because I'm not likely to get arrested. If somebody is arrested, they could sit in prison for a while before they're arraigned. So there's a big backlog um, before people even get into prison. And, you know, couple that with, again, the fact that police, there's a lot of corruption among the police uh, in Brazil and the distrust I talked about before. You know, the criminal justice system isn't viewed by Brazilians as working for them. So let's talk now about kind of the the heart of, I think, this episode, and that is uh, prisons and sort of the role of prisons in responding to crime in, in countries like Brazil. And I can think of, I guess, three or four principal reasons why prisons exist, right? One is punishment. Another one is deterrence. Another one is security, you know, basically keeping society protected from criminals. But the fourth one is rehabilitation, right? At least in the in the last, you know, what, 50, 100 years, that is now increasingly the focus of a lot of systems is how do we make sure, as you said, 
these aren't incubators of brand new criminals right. uh, or hardened criminals. And how do we return these people to society in which they are productive and, and so on? So, so let's talk about Prison Fellowship International, the, the organization you're with. Tell me sort of what is the business model, so to speak. And then from there, we'll go back to Brazil and see what does that look like in Brazil. Yeah. So Prison Fellowship started a little over 40 years ago. And at the heart of it is a belief that prisoners and by extension, their families are alienated. So they're, they're alienated from uh, their families, they're alienated from the community, and they're alienated from God. And unless those three components are restored or in balance, you're going to continue to have uh, crime. So uh, the mission of Prison Fellowship is basically to transform the lives of prisoners uh, their families, because a lot of the prisoners of tomorrow, the offenders of tomorrow, are children of prisoners today. Uh, so to restore or to transform their lives and then transform the lives of victims who are impacted by crime. So think of that sort of the mission of Prison Fellowship International. Our business model has been to equip and uh, support 120 roughly 120 national ministries around the world or affiliates that are in the front lines of doing that in about 17% of the prisons around the world. So Prison Fellowship exists through its affiliates in countries like Brazil who are autonomous, self-governing, and our role as an international body is to provide them with programs, training, so they can be effective. So, David, Prison Fellowship started in the United States, right? And it was started by Chuck Colson, who most people remember from the Watergate uh, scandal. But he started out as he was the, count, the White House counsel for President Nixon, convicted in a Watergate scandal, went to prison. Uh, did he start it right after getting out of prison or while he was still in prison, the, the ministry? Well, I think that's a great question because a lot of what he began to see while he was in prison worked. So the genesis for Prison Fellowship began, uh, I think, in Chuck's mind while he was in prison. And when he came out, he founded it um, based on what he began to see while he was in prison in terms of what worked and what didn't work. Uh, so Prison Fellowship started as soon as he got out of prison and he began to write books about it. And the international movement began just a couple of years after the U.S. started uh, and now it's 40 years old. So uh, and it began as a movement because Prison Fellowship U.S. became sort of the touchstone for a common mission and vision for the rest of the world. And it grew over time. So just to be clear, this is an organization that in their respective countries in which they work, they, they work they're not just working sort of outside the prison, so to speak, right, where prisoners come out and help them get a job. They're working actually in the prisons themselves, right. which requires the cooperation of prison authorities. Right. So tell me how that relationship works in general. Uh, I know, you know, there's no one size fits all, I imagine. But number one, let's start with a prison fellowship is a faith-based religious organization. Is that a problem working with in most prison systems in countries in which I imagine this is uh, their secular government? For the most part, it isn't because most, first of all, most prison systems, whether you're in the developing world or the developed world, are just overwhelmed. So they're overwhelmed by the number of uh, offenders or prisoners that they're taking care of. Uh, and they don't have the resources to do the kind of restorative or rehabilitation programs that you talked about. So their mission gets reduced to just incapacitating people, keeping them locked down so they don't kill each other, as opposed to rehabilitating, 
prisoners so they don't come back. Uh, so in most countries, I've been in 50 countries in the last three years, and in all those countries meeting with prison authorities. Most prison authorities, whether at the Ministry of Justice level or the what's equivalent to our Bureau of Prisons or at the operational level, are looking for evidence-based programs at work. To a greater or lesser degree, depending on the country you're in, they care about whether or not you're faith-based. So in some countries, uh, U.S. would be one of them, it's, it's okay to be faith-based. In fact, it's, it, that's not a, an issue for prison authorities as long as participation in your programs is voluntary by prisoners. It's not coerced or anything of that nature. And you're not using public funds to support an inherently religious activity. So as long as you're volunteering, it's a voluntary program, and you're willing to offer it at no cost, or if the government is providing some support, it's for the secular aspects of it, uh, the social services part of it, there's no issue. And more importantly, or I think the, the larger point is, in most cases, they're dying for help. They want the community to come in. They know that getting the community involved, churches, families, people that are motivated, out of faith, but willing to come in and provide services to prisoners, they know that there two things will happen. The level of prison incidents go down, so there's more peace in the prison, so their immediate problem of controlling the population is addressed, and it's more likely that they won't recidivate when they go out. So when you make your when you're an initial meeting with a, a new prison system and you make your pitch to them and they say, Well, great, you know, we don't really care where you come from or mm -hmm. what you believe, but what it you know, how does it work and what are the results that I'm gonna see as a prison director? What you, you mentioned some of that, that right, there's right. it sounds like what lower levels of violence mm -hmm. uh, in the prisons that you operate. What are some of the other uh, metrics or, or things that you cite as evidence that hey, we can help you out? Well, what's meaningful to most people on the front line running prisons are a couple of things. One, will this help me control my population? Is there something about what you're offering that will help prisoners be less violent, uh, reduce the level of prison incidents? And we can point to success in that area. Secondly, will this have any downstream effect in their likelihood to rearrest? Those are the two big issues. And from a policy point of view, the second is the most important for policymakers, but for practitioners who are running prisons, they're concerned about, can, will this help me control the population? Now, Prison Fellowship had a study done a few years ago by Dr. Byron Johnson, who's now at Baylor University, who found that Prison Fellowship programming in prison, small group programs that work over a certain period of time, reduce recidivism from 41% to 14%. So looking at similar populations uh, in terms of offenders and other criminogenic factors, it reduced recidivism from 41 to 14%. There have been other PF programs around the world that have been evaluated to show similar reductions. And most recently that I'm aware of, the interchange program that Prison Fellowship Ministries here in this country runs showed in a uh, third-party evaluation that it cut recidivism in half or rearrest rates in half for those that completed the program. And that was a pretty intensive 24-7, 365 faith-based prison program. Right. When you look at the overall impact of prison fellowship, 
generally we're seeing a reduction in recidivism of around 50%. So quite significant. Yeah. So let's talk about Brazil and Prison Fellowship International Brazil. You've been there, the program has been there a little over 30 years, is that roughly? Yeah, yeah, okay. that's right. And uh, what's significant about Brazil is you developed a new methodology there um, that you have actually been applying in the United States, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Tell us what was the methodology, you know, how is it developed and, and what sort of results are you seeing from it? Yeah, that? it's very interesting. It's The acronym is for the program's APAC, A-P-A-C, which translates to the Association for the Protection and Assistance of the Condemned. But every country has a different name for it. The basic model started in Brazil in the 70s. The genesis was that there was a prison in San Jose de Campos that was so violent that the government shut the prison down. And Catholic volunteers who had been visiting that prison in that town petitioned the government mm -hmm. to allow them to take it over and run it at no cost to the government. They would just give them the building and the rights to run it. And that, that prison, which was called Humeda, was the first... I think over 200 uh, faith-based prisons that operate around the world, 48 of them in Brazil. So, so wait, let's just clarify what that means, a faith-based prison, because yeah. it's not a phrase you hear very often. Does this Is this a prison with no guards, or, or do they simply administer, are they the administrators and you still have all the other things that a prison will have with walls and barbed wire and guards, or what is it what that It's diff a little different from one country to another. So in Brazil, where the prototype, was developed and continues to be the, the country with the most number of these. The government actually pays Prison Fellowship Brazil a stipend for each prisoner in the prisons that they turn over to Prison Fellowship Brazil. Uh, so Prison Fellowship Brazil will actually operate in a partnership with the government, the APOC program. Now, the government may provide perimeter security around the fence to make sure that at least at the beginning, the program is that people aren't escaping or they're until they get their program established. But once the APOC program is established, the entire security and everything else for uh, operating that prison is provided by PF Brazil with help from Brazilian government to pay for costs. And last I was aware of, they're operating the APOC prisons in Brazil at a third the cost that the Brazilian government was operating them and seeing a 10% recidivism rate when around the rest of Brazil, it's 75 to 85%. Now, part of that's because the prisoners that come there must volunteer to go. I see. So there is some self-selection, but they're all similar in terms of the kinds of crimes they've committed. Are these violent offenders? They're or? violent offenders. They're hardcore, in some cases, hardcore uh, former drug or gang members. But they've all shown while in the public prisons a desire to change. And the PF Brazil validates that. I mean, they go so in- So some and, sort of evaluation that's process right. UK. So that's they can't right. just say, hey, yeah, I want to change. And that's then right. they go to what they perceive as- And they'll verify it. So they're, they're trying to verify the level of passion or commitment to change their life before they bring them in. So similar in terms of criminal history, but the difference is there's a desire to change and there's evidence that they want to do that. They go through, like I said, a basically a faith-based prison format that's three, you know, 24-7 over a period of years 
And, um, you know, it's a three-phase program. It's got a lot of elements to it. But the main driving force is they're saturated with different view of who they are, who they can be, and who they can be in relationship to the people they've harmed, their families, and other people in the community. So by the time they are in what's called the open regime, the last phase, which we would call aftercare, they've got godparents. I mean, they people in the community actually adopt these prisoners as their own children. And they so they've got connections with the community that they never had and wouldn't have any other way. David, do you know off the top of your head, what is the, sort of the, the number of, of uh, prisoners right now in this, in the APAC or in the prison? About 4,000 in 4, Brazil. Yeah. Okay. And that's one of the limitations is for them to run the program that they need to run, they can't operate a prison of 5,000 people. So they can operate a pavilion right. in a large prison, and they do, but often they're running APAC units of three, four, five hundred 500 people. And within the Brazilian prison system and also the wider political system, how is this playing? Is this something is seen as, as a positive trend that the policymakers want to do more of? Yes. Or, or is it controversial? And, and just as an aside, I mean, we know that the, the prison, the Brazilian prison system is in terrible shape. I, you're just going by the number of prison riots, right? I mean, right. it seems there's, uh, there was one in- Two weeks ago. In Ju- two weeks ago in July, and it was mm-hmm. horrific. Yeah. And you, you read this, oh, it seems like every year, I, I could be exaggerating, a, a Brazilian prison riot in which a number of people are killed, prisoners killing guards, mm-hmm. prisoners keeping prisoners. Where, where are you locating that constellation in terms of potential policy changes uh, to the Brazilian prison system? Yeah, it's a really good question because, you know, APOC, that particular program isn't going to solve all the problems in the general population. Now, what PF Brazil has done is to open up the common prisons to a greater extent because the government wants them. And different states in Brazil are, are actually asking Prison Fellowship Brazil to come in in a greater way and operate APOC, operate these faith-based prisons. So what PF Brazil has done is implement what I would call a more limited program inside the common prisons to sort of test the desire of prisoners to participate in a life-changing, transformative program like APOC. I guess where I'm going with that is they're trying to innovate and find out how deeply they can penetrate the common prisons with APOC. What we've learned is that about a third of the prisoners in any prison want to change and can change, but without help won't change. Another third are not going to change and you can't help them. They don't want to change. You might as well incapacitate them. And another third, you don't need to do anything. They're not coming back. So what we always try to do in prison fellowship is target the third that want to change and then help them make that transition. So, you know, you have 800,000 prisoners in Brazil, the third largest prison system in the world. They're not going to solve their problem just by running prison fellowship programs, but it's clearly a big component, could be a big component of the solution. Other things they need to do are more on the front end. I mean, Prevention programs for first-time offenders, a huge, a lot of evidence-based programs that that works. Not doing any of that or very little of that in Brazil right now. So there's other pieces of the solution that need to be in place. Is this a model that you're using elsewhere in Latin America, the APAC? Yeah, APAC has been implemented in Colombia to a big degree. I mean, big prison fellowship program in Colombia. 
was active in Ecuador. I'm not quite sure if it's still active in Ecuador. Chile runs APOC programs, and PF is active in over 90 prisons in Chile. Many of those are running APOC programs. So yes, it's it's spreading most heavily through Latin America. But you've got countries in Europe and Asia Pacific that are also starting to run APOC-like programs. And like you said, the U.S., when George Bush was governor, he opened the first APOC facility outside of Houston called Interchange. And now that's continuing Sugarland, and that's now uh, replicated in Iowa and Minnesota. And the, the prison fellowship models overseas, I mean, these are all local volunteers and, and predominantly local staff, right? These aren't Americans or Europeans coming in and, and running indigenous. this program. This is yeah. all indigenous, yes. right? And that, I guess, explains it, its explosive growth, right? Because there's no way you'd be able to staff out all those No, and, and uh, you don't know the culture. I mean, all the reasons that a lot of programs that are started and staffed by people uh, from the U.S. don't necessarily succeed is because they don't know the culture and the nuances and how to get things done in a country. And your bottleneck at the moment isn't isn't really prison authorities saying you can't come in. It's it's your ability as an organization to provide those volunteers and and do the program. In a I way would that- even well, I, that's a very good question because we got forty thousand volunteers uh-huh. around the world. Churches where most of these volunteers come from are willing and able and are stepping up. The opportunity is bigger than our ability to fund it, to be honest. So more governments, more prison directors are asking for prison fellowship to come in and do work in their countries than we can support. I mean, that's to be the, the bottom line is funding at, at not only at the international level, but in each of these countries. And one, some of the countries with the biggest needs have the least resources. Right, right. David, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, it sounds like you're you're doing very good work. Uh, it sounds like the, basically the sky's the limit in terms of your your uh, opportunities, as you said, and it's just the, sort of the physical constraints of, of funding right. and number of volunteers and so on. Um, love to have you back on the show, uh, you know, later on to sort of hear about other programs that you're running in the in the region, and and wish you the best of luck. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at csis.org. Thank you.